the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. John the Baptist started his public ministry 30 years after he was born to Elizabeth and Zacharias, an elderly couple who had been barren for many years. John was baptizing people in the baptism of repentance, telling people to turn away from their sin and return to the one true living God. John was sent to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. While baptizing people, the scribes and Pharisees came out to see what the commotion was about John's ministry. John called them out for their hypocrisy. We continue with Pastor Will as we look at John's ministry as he baptizes Jesus here in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. But let me give you a biblical definition of what the Bible teaches about the Godhead. It says, or teaches, that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. God is one in essence and three in person. One in essence and three in person. Now, these definitions express three crucial truths. The first truth is this, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. For example, and if you've done this, please don't be offended because I hear Christians do it all the time and they're well-meaning, but it's heresy. Have you ever described the Trinity as this? Well, it's like me. I'm a father, I'm a husband, and I'm a pastor. That's called modal monarchianism. That's heresy, okay? That is not how the Godhead is because that would be one person with three distinct roles. That is not who God is. He is three distinct persons. So you have the father, you have the son, and you have the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that that definition taught us. The second part is each of those persons is fully and truly God. So it's not like Jesus is a lesser God, for example, like Jehovah's Witnesses teach to a degree, or Mormons teach. He's not a lesser God. He is fully God in every way. He is all God. It's not like there's this hierarchy or structure, you know, where the Father, you know, is a little bit greater than Jesus. You say, wait a second, I thought Jesus said my Father is greater than I. Yes, in the role that Jesus took where the Bible says he humbled himself and became a man and put himself in submission to the Father, he talks about all that. There's lots of scripture that talks about the incarnation and how he willingly subjected himself to the Father. But intrinsically, you know, by nature, he's not less than the Father, he is fully God. The Holy Spirit's fully God. Sometimes the way churches treat the Holy Spirit is kind of like he's the forgotten part of the Trinity. And we're kind of, they get kind of afraid to talk about him at all. Now, the Holy Spirit likes to remain behind the scenes because what's his job? To bring glory to Jesus, right? 
You always know a church is filled with the Holy Spirit when they're talking about Jesus a lot because that's what he does. He draws the attention to Jesus. That being said, you know, as we sang this morning, we sang to him because he's God. He's fully God. You know, he's not this lesser G-God, you know. He's fully God. And the third principle that it taught us, that definition, is that there is only one God. You say, that's impossible. How can it be three persons and one God? Let me start off by saying you're not going to be able to wrap your mind fully around that because, I mean, just try to wrap your mind fully around eternity. You know, how many times as a kid, I know I would ask my parents, they say, mom, dad, whoever's in front of me, who made God? And they say, well, no one made God, son. You know this. We've told you this a thousand times. Yeah, but I understand, you know, who made him before eternity, you know? And it just because our brains operate from beginning to end. We operate in finiteness. We don't operate in infiniteness. But God, he's eternal. So he always was. So there are parts that are difficult for us to fully wrap our minds around. Maybe you've heard the Trinity described this way. It's kind of like an egg, you know? It's kind of like, you know, you've got the shell and you've got the yolk and you've got the white. That's also heresy. All your descriptions are probably heresy, so don't give them. So, no, seriously, I hear Christians try to do it, you know? And again, it's well-meaning, but it's all heresy. Because really, there's nothing on earth that, that fully, you know, describes it. Or I've heard people, Holy Spirit described as water. He's like, you know, it's steam and it's ice or it's this, heresy. The best way I can explain it is this. What sounds like a contradiction isn't necessarily God in three persons, one God, three persons, one essence, three distinct persons. They're two separate points, two separate statements. I heard one theologian describe it this way. I don't remember what Charles Dickens' book it was, but it starts off with the phrase, the worst of times and the best of times. Now, that's a contradiction, isn't it? How can it be the best of times and worst of times, right? That's a contradiction, right? And yet you know what he means when he says that, don't you? You know that in some ways, you look and go, yeah, it is the worst of times, and yet There's wonderful things that are happening during the conditions that are bad. When we talk about God being one essence and three persons, they're not contradictory. They're two separate statements to define who God is. Now, again, try to wrap your mind around it. You'll find great difficulty because you're a finite being. But the Bible declares those things clearly. We see all three truths in Jesus' baptism, which is why this moment is mentioned in every gospel. But it's not the only place where we see all three distinctly mentioned as God. You know, in John chapter 16, we read it earlier. One place where I showed you all three were present, but there's another one. There's one, a place that we read earlier that I didn't point out. In John 16, 13, we read that, but let's read verses 14 through 15. It says, The Spirit will come, he'll guide us into truth, for he won't speak about himself. For whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. We'll look at verse 14. He shall glorify me. Wait a second. God says he'll share his glory with no one else. No one else, right? He says, I alone am God. There's none beside me, right? So how can the spirit who is God be glorifying Jesus if Jesus isn't God? And yet we see them both distinctly mentioned here. And yet we know there's one God. He shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and he'll show it unto you. But here we see the third aspect. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he shall take of mine and he shall show it unto you. So everything that the Father has, Jesus has. But everything that Jesus has, he gives it to the Spirit to show to us. So all three distinct persons, and yet we know there's one God. You know, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What's interesting is that phrase one, it refers to a compound unity. If I were to tell you I had a bundle of sticks, how many bundles do I have? 
one, right? But how many sticks do I have? More than one, at least. I've got a bundle, and yet it's one, right? Matthew 28, 19, there's another passage where we see where it says that baptize them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy, Holy Spirit. That's what we're to do, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is that? You know, when you say the name, it refer, that's a distinct person. Your name is your reputation. It's who you are. And yet we know there's one God. This is what the scriptures teach. Not only does the Father verify Jesus' identity as God at his baptism, but we also see that he verifies Jesus' faithfulness as a man. Look back at Luke chapter 3. For he says, not only are you my beloved son, but he says, in you, I am well pleased. That phrase, well pleased, it means to take delight in, to approve of, to give one's consent. You know, it's like at the start, Jesus is about to begin his ministry, and it's almost like the Father, he, he's from heaven, he's declaring, he's saying, it's okay with me, son. Go for it. You're the man. You're the guy to get the job done. You are the Messiah. You're the one I've chosen, and you have lived up to the standard I have for that ministry, that calling. So the Father testifies to Jesus as the Messiah, and the Spirit confirmed it by descending. So not only is Jesus God, but he is that Messiah man who would rescue us from our sins. Verse 23 explains. So Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathet, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Jana, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of, all the way down to verse 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Now, I didn't read all the names because, first off, uh, I will probably mispronounce a lot of them. But secondly, it, it does get a little laborious to read through all the names. Um, they're all, these are all significant individuals that are in the line of uh, the kingly line of David. And then we go before that, and we go all the way back to Jacob, you know, Isaac, Abraham, and we go all the way even beyond that back to Adam. What's the idea of this here? Well, it's showing us that Jesus began to be. This refers to the fact that Jesus started his ministry. So his baptism signified the start of his ministry. So at, the, at his baptism, the Lord is declaring that he is the one. He is the chosen. He is the Messiah. He's the one you need to listen to. He's the one that John has been telling you about. And that's important because as we saw last week, what happened to John after he baptized Jesus? Well, we read a few verses earlier that he was arrested by Herod and imprisoned and of course, eventually he'll be beheaded. So now Jesus, he's, he's going to be the one reaching the people. Just as John prepared their hearts, now he's here. Now they need to receive their Messiah. What's interesting here is that it says, and Jesus, he's unique though in this lineage here. I mean, all of us have a, have a family tree, right? Some of us know it, some of us don't. We all have a family tree, and this is Jesus' family tree. And yet, Jesus is a little bit unique in this family tree. For it says, and Jesus himself began to be, or began, it, it's a weird way the New King, Old King James says it, the New King James gets it better, began his ministry about the age of 30, being, and what does it say next? As was supposed. The phrase there, as was supposed, means what people regarded as true. That doesn't necessarily mean it was true. He was supposed to be the son of Joseph. Well, Joseph was Jesus' caregiver. But who was Jesus' father? God was his father, right? Not Joseph. Why is that important to point out here? 
Well, now we get to the significance of why even put a lineage here? Why even put all these names here when it's laborious to read through? What's the importance of it? Well, a few things. First off, Joseph did not pass his DNA on to Jesus. That means Jesus did not have a sin nature. We get our sin nature from Adam. We get our sin nature from dad. I don't know why it works that way. That's how it works. I recognize mom contributes DNA. I get that. But the sin nature comes from your father. That's what the scriptures teach. So Joseph, not being his father, did not, they did not get that sinful DNA. Why is that necessary? Well, that means Jesus qualifies as our Passover lamb. Remember when John saw him in the book of John and he said, behold, the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus now qualifies as our Passover lamb because not only is he without spot, he's without blemish. Being without spot means that the lamb had taken no injury. It hadn't had any, any, you know, it didn't, you know, get in a fight and lost an eye or something like that. But without blemish means it was born in perfect health. Jesus, he was sinless in his behavior, but he also didn't have a sin nature. And therefore, you know, he could be our perfect Passover lamb. He never sinned, nor is he tainted by Adam's sin nature. That's one of the reasons when you go through this lineage, you'll find that it's different from the one in Matthew chapter one. You can look over there on your own time, but you'll see it's different names there. Why is it different names? Well, Matthew shows Joseph's lineage through Solomon, in fact, the word phrase was the son of here is in italics. So that it just means was the descendant of. It shows Joseph's lineage from Solomon, the son of David, to prove that he's the rightful king of Israel. But this lineage is different. When it says here was the son of, we could just say that Jesus was the descendant of Joseph, who was a descendant of Heli, because you would never reckon it according to the mother. And yet it's different because this isn't Joseph's lineage, it's Mary's lineage. Now, why is that important? Well, Mary is descended from David through his son, Nathan, which means that he has a rightful claim to the throne through Joseph, and yet he's not tainted by sin, so he can still be king because he's descended through Nathan. Well, why is that important? Well, Joseph didn't pass on his line, his family tree's judgment to Jesus. What are you talking about, Will? Turn to Jeremiah 22. Now stay here, don't flip right back to Luke right away when we're done because we're going to go to the book of Haggai, which is right towards the end of the Old Testament. This is towards the end of the kingdom of Judah's time before they go into captivity in Babylon. And they had a wicked king named Jeconiah, or Jeconias, will be called here by Jeremiah. And he was so wicked that God pronounced judgment upon him through Jeremiah. And here it is, verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, and God always lives, so it's going to hold true. He says, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, though he was the the thing that, that confirmed all that was right about my rule, he says, yet I will pluck him off. Even though he's my signet ring, I would pluck it off and throw it away. He says, and I will give you into the hand of them that seek your life, referring to uh, Kanias or Jeconias. He says, and into the hand of them whose face you fear, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast you out and your mother that bare you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. So Jeconiah was eventually you know, conquered by Babylon and he was taken away kept in captivity and he died in Babylon. But to the land whereunto you desire to return, Israel, thither shall you not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? The people loved him. They looked up to him as their, he's going to be their rebel, the one that's going to break the chains of Babylon. 
Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Why is he cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? He says, O earth, O earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. Friend, here's the judgment. Thus says the Lord. Write you this man childless. That's the first pronouncement. A man that shall not prosper in his days. The second pronouncement. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The third judgment. So none of his descendants will rule on the throne. He won't prosper in the kingdom and he'll have no, no children. Now that creates a problem because what did the Lord say to David? He said, they'll never fail to sit on the throne, you know, one of your, your descendants. And then, of course, it came with a caveat that if they walk in my ways, otherwise I will remove that from him. But there was a promise that God would establish the Messianic kingdom through David. How is that possible if Jeconias can't have any kids, won't prosper, and none of his seed, none of his descendants of any, any shape, way, or form shall, shall sit on the throne? We'll look over to Haggai chapter 2. Isn't this exciting? I love this stuff. The end of the story is this. When Jeconiah was in Babylon, he repented. He repented and he turned back to the Lord. And the Bible says that God raised him up, that he actually had a seat at Nebuchadnezzar's dinner table, which was a place of honor, a place where he would be fed well, taken care of, and looked on very well. The Lord raised him up again. And according to Haggai chapter 2, we see that God lifts parts of this judgment. It's the very last verse of the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you as a signet. Remember God said he would take him off and cast him away, referring to Jeconias? Well, this guy's rubbable. He says, I'm gonna put you back on again. I will make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. You say, what does that have to do with Jeconias? Well, he is a descendant. He is the, he's the one in the kingly line. He is the direct descendant of Jeconias. That means Jeconias had kids. So not only did he have kids, but God did prosper him. God lifted some of that judgment. God rescinded it. Jewish scholars believe God rescinded the judgment of having children and that his descendants wouldn't prosper. And in this pronouncement, we see the great mercy of God. The Lord promises to prosper Zerubbabel here, even reminding him of his lineage. You're the son of Shealtiel, remember? Who was the son of Jeconias? And yet, I'm gonna prosper you, I'm gonna restore you, I'm gonna have mercy. However, There's no mention of Zerubbabel sitting on the throne even though God prospers him. And so the scholars believe that God never rescinded that part of the judgment. Now, would God only reverse some parts of a judgment? Well, yes, that's called mercy. I mean, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Jeconiah still died in Babylon. He never got to go back to Israel, so that judgment stayed there. Sometimes we do things and you can't avoid some of the consequences because sin has consequences. And yet God can heal and restore. So we see a hint here that God also keeps the prohibition from the throne in place because Zerubbabel is called God's servant here, not God's king. Now, that Jesus isn't the blood descendant of Joseph means he's not the blood descendant of Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and Jeconias, which means that this judgment doesn't apply to him. So he does qualify for the throne through David and through Solomon, through Joseph, and yet he qualifies to be free of this judgment because he's not blood-related to Jeconias. He is a son of David or a descendant of David through David's son, Nathan, through Mary. And therefore, he has no need to be a descendant of Solomon to claim the throne. That's just one reason why Jesus was virgin-born. And I love that because God put himself in a corner, didn't he, with that judgment? He put himself in a corner. The scholars are trying to, how is he going to get out of that? Oh, I'll just, I'll make a kid. 
I don't need a dad. I'll just make one because I'm God and I can do that sort of thing. Well, one other point of significance before we close. When you, and if you go to Matthew and you look at the lineage there, it stops at Abraham because he's the father of the Jewish people, right? But here, if you notice in verse 34, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, we keep going back. And we go all the way back to verse 38, which says, which was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Now, Adam wasn't the son of God like Jesus is or we are. That's not what it's saying here. The phrase, the son of, he's not a physical descendant of God, but he was created by God. Matthew's genealogy, why does it go all the way back to creation? I mean, Luke's genealogy, why does it go all the way back to creation? Quite simply this, because Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah. He's the savior of the world. All who come to him in faith can be forgiven and saved. Amen? Because most of us aren't Jewish here. And so we can be saved because his line goes all the way back to the beginning. So all of us, all of us have some connection to him in that way whereby we can be saved. Now, as the worship team comes forward, what do we do with all this stuff? He said, that was a heavy theology study, Pastor Will, and we need that sometimes because we need to know why we believe what we believe. But you know, as we look at Jesus being God, the Son of God, I'm not a son of God. But the Bible does say I've become a child of God. I am an adopted child of God. I've been adopted into God's family. So in the same way that the Lord said about his son, you're my beloved son, always, that's who you are by nature. But by the way he lived his life, he said, in you I am well pleased. Well, I'm not by nature a son of God. By nature, I'm a child of wrath. But I've been adopted into the family of God by faith. I want to delight, the Lord to delight in the way I live now too. I want to obey him because I want to please his heart. And I would ask you this morning, is that your desire? If you want to just obey him, you want to please his heart, you want this to be your testimony that the Lord is well pleased with your life, let's make that our desire this morning. Now, if you're here today and you're not, not a believer yet, the reason we need to be adopted into God's family is because we've lived to please ourselves and we haven't lived to please him. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's standard, his glory, The wages for that kind of life is death, the Bible says. But the beautiful thing is God offers the gift of eternal life through his son. How? Well, Jesus didn't just come to earth to live a perfect life so we could all look around and go, great job, Jesus. He came so that he could take our place. The one who doesn't deserve any judgment, any death, he went to the cross for us where he bore the wrath of God for all our sins so that he would say, whosoever believes in him, whosoever puts their trust in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, it's that simple. You say, Lord, I I agree with you. I've fallen so short of your standard, but I believe Jesus paid the price for me. And so I want to turn away from that kind of life. I want to follow you. I want to please you. And the first way you do that is by giving your life to the Lord, by saying, Lord, I believe. I want you to be my savior. I want you to run my life from now on. If you've never done that, as we sing, that's the time to do that. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word here. We thank you that we can pull so many wonderful truths from a passage that might not even seem to be very meaningful to us as we're just casually reading. We believe your word is inspired, Lord. We believe that every word is necessary for us in some way, shape, or form. And so, Lord, we want, to write, want you to write it on our hearts. We want to be those who please you just like Jesus did. And Lord, we know we can't do that on our own, so we pray to fill us with your spirit that we might do so. 
Well, Lord, we do thank you so much for your great love and mercy. We give this time of song to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus is God, come down in the flesh. The second person of the Godhead came and walked in our shoes for 30 years. Growing up in a poor family, he knew what it was like to be hungry, to suffer want, to work hard as a carpenter, to suffer loss, to be sick and tired. God came and lived with his people, and yet he didn't leave us in our fallen world. He has given us a chance to be a part of his family, to be joint heirs with Christ, and one day be able to stand before him as adopted children looking into their loving Father's face. All we must do is repent from our pride and turn to Jesus. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.